Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to what will be episode six of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. This will drop on Wednesday, November 24th. So let me wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. There won't be an episode on Thanksgiving Day or the Friday following. Now, if you have children and the schools are anything like they were back when I went to school in the 1970s, they've probably decorated their classrooms with all kinds of paraphernalia related to the pilgrims, those Puritan settlers who came over on the Mayflower and settled what became Plymouth Colony in the 1600s. Today, I'd like to talk about something you probably haven't heard about the pilgrims, Every once in a while, you'll see an article here or there. Sometimes the conservatives pick this up, something that really the libertarians have written most about, and that is the economic system of the pilgrims and also the Jamestown colony in Virginia. What we do here is that there was a lot of hardship in those colonies during their initial years, and then that somehow or other, Things turned around and they began to thrive later. Well, it's kind of funny that they don't really tell you the reason for that, even though it's well documented and used to be a standard part of American history. And that is that the colonies originally had communist economies. That's right, those belt buckle, funny hat wearing pilgrims were communists when they first came over. They worked the land and put all of the produce of their work into a common storehouse and then simply doled it out to each family according to its need. So this really was an experiment in not only socialism, but democratic socialism. Democracy was a key principle of the Puritan movement, although you could not say the same thing for the colony in Jamestown, which was made up mostly of indentured servants. But in any case, I wanted to give you an idea of how well-known these facts were at one point in American history, how they were a standard part of historical education, and they seem to have been scrubbed completely from our consciousness, at least in my lifetime. I never heard about why the pilgrims actually starved. I was, 
I was led to believe that the Jamestown colonists had such a hard time in Virginia because of maybe mosquitoes and uh, the fact that they had their colony in a swamp and that the pilgrims went through their own starving time because they didn't seem to know how to grow food in America, even though they had been quite successful in England and had been quite uh, successful in the Dutch economy, even though that required them to adapt to a more merchant economy rather than an agrarian one. But that's not true in either case. It's clearly documented that the reason there was a starving time in Jamestown and similarly one in the colony in Plymouth was because of the communist economy there. And it's also clearly documented that their fortunes turned around when they got rid of the communist economy and went to a private property system. And I'd like to read just a few things to you from some historical sources, just so you don't think this is some crazy theory by that guy in Buffalo. Let's start with Charles and Mary Beard. This is their History of the United States, published in 1921. And I'm just going to read a passage to you uh, from it, a short passage. And it says, In the New World, with its broad extent of land awaiting the white man's plow, it was impossible to introduce in its entirety and over the whole area the system of lords and tenants that existed across the sea. So it happened that almost every kind of experiment in land tenure, from communism to feudalism, was tried. In the early days of the Jamestown colony, the land, though owned by the London Company, was tilled in common by the settlers. No man had a separate plot of his own. The motto of the community was labor and share alike. All men were supposed to work in the fields and receive an equal share of the produce. At Plymouth, the pilgrims attempted a similar experiment, laying out the fields in common and distributing the joint produce of their labor with rough equality among the workers. In both colonies, the communistic experiments were failures, angry at the lazy men in Jamestown who idled their time away and yet expected regular meals, Captain John Smith issued a manifesto. Everyone that gathereth not every day as much as I do, the next day shall be set beyond the river and forever banished from the fort and live there or starve. Even this terrible threat did not bring a change in production. Not until each man was given a plot of his own to till, not until each gathered the fruits of his own labor did the colony prosper. In Plymouth, where the communal experiment lasted for five years, the results were similar to those in Virginia, and the system was given up for one of separate fields in which every person could set corn for his own particular. Those are William Bradford's words. And I'm going to read a passage from William Bradford as well. I'd like to point out that Captain John Smith displays what our own leaders today believe is the solution to every problem, and that's just barking orders at the colonists, thinking that his will alone can change the laws, the economic laws. Uh, of course, it's always a failure. It was a failure in Jamestown. It's a failure today. But I don't want to rely on this one single source. I want to read you what William Bradford himself, the governor of Plymouth, for much of the time that they were there, including the period during which they starved and the period where they later prospered, had to say. But I want to say a few more words about 
the Jamestown colony first, since that came first chronologically in history. Now, as I said, there was a period that's commonly known as the starving time in Jamestown. And let me give you a few numbers. In 1607, the colonists first arrived there. There was 104 of them, very close to the number that originally settled Plymouth. After six months, only 38 survived, so they lost more than half of their numbers. Two years later, they sent 500 more recruits, as they called them. A lot of these people were going there against their will as either indentured servants or convicted criminals. 440 of the 500 died, almost all of them. So this was a complete disaster. And again, we're led to believe that this was entirely due to the climate or the fact that these colonists were just completely inept at surviving in the new world. But that's not the case. And I'll read you now a passage from Thomas Lorenzo's How Capitalism Saved America. He writes, in 1611, the British government sent Sir Thomas Dale to serve as the High Marshal of the Virginia Colony. Dale noted that although most of the settlers had starved to death, the remaining ones were spending much of their time playing games in the streets, and he immediately identified the problem, the system of communal ownership. He determined, therefore, that each man in the colony would be given three acres of land and be required to work no more than one month per year, and not at planting or harvest time, to contribute to the treasure of the colony. So in other words, they would only work for one month of the year towards the colony and the rest of the time on their own land for themselves. And DiLorenzo continues, The farmers would be required to pay the colony a lump sum tax of two and a half barrels of corn. Private property was thus put into place and the colony immediately began to prosper. There was no more free riding for each individual himself bore the full consequences of any reductions in output. At the same time, the individual had an incentive to increase his effort because he directly benefited from his own labor. As historian Matthew Page Andrew writes, as soon as the settlers were thrown upon their own resources and each freeman had acquired the right of owning property, the colonists quickly developed what became the distinguishing characteristic of Americans, an aptitude for all kinds of craftsmanship, coupled with an innate genius for experimentation and invention. And DiLorenzo now goes on to say, The new system produced other benefits as well. The Jamestown colonists had originally implored the Indians to sell them corn, but the Indians looked down on the settlers because they were barely capable of growing corn thanks to their communistic economic system. After the introduction of private property and the resulting transformation, however, the Indians began coming to the colonists to acquire corn in return for furs and other items. That is, the colonists and the Indians began to engage in peaceful market exchange based on the division of labor. The mutual advantages of such a system are always conducive to peace as well as prosperity, as many of the colonists realized, for it makes little sense to make war on one's neighbor if one can prosper by trading. And there are two great points made by that passage. One, of course, that what saved the Jamestown colonists from starving was to get rid of the socialist system and put in a private property system. And also that the Native Americans were not these two-dimensional cartoon characters that 
we're led to believe were just exploited by the settlers at every turn. These were discriminating people. They chose to trade with the colonists only when they saw it was to their economic advantage. And note that what peace there was between the settlers and the natives was completely based on capitalism and free trade. That's another thing I don't think anyone has heard in their standard grade school or high school education, at least during my lifetime. So what about the pilgrims? It is Thanksgiving after all. And I'd like to read a passage from not a secondary source, but William Bradford's own diary titled Of Plymouth Plantation. But first, let's go over a few numbers. The numbers here in in Plymouth Plantation are very similar. It was 102 settlers that came to the Plymouth colony originally. And again, they lost half their numbers during the first winter. And this pattern would repeat again the next winter. They'd send more colonists and they wouldn't make it through the winter. So finally, the governor with his advisors decided to try something else. And here are Bradford's own words about what that was and what happened next. So they began to consider how to raise more corn and obtain a better crop than they had done so that they might not continue to endure the misery of want. At length, after much debate, the governor, with the advice of the chief among them, allowed each man to plant corn for his own household and to trust to themselves for that and all other things to go on in the general way as before. So every family was assigned a parcel of land according to the proportion of their number with that in view for present purposes only and making no division for inheritance, all boys and children being included under some family. This was very successful. It made all hands very industrious so that much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could devise and saved him a great deal of trouble and gave far better satisfaction. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn, while before they would allege weakness and inability, and to have compelled them would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. And I want to take a break from the passage and just point out again the uh, the words, by any other means the governor could devise. So in other words, He's recognizing here that barking orders does not change economic laws, just as John Smith had discovered back in Jamestown. So the the best possible system that they could set up was a private property system where people kept the fruits of their own labor. But Bradford doesn't stop there. He actually thinks there's a lesson to draw from this experiment. And let me get back into his, uh, his diary. Bradford writes, The failure of this experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years and by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients, applauded by some of later times, that the taking away of private property and the possession of it in community by a commonwealth would make a state happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. For in this instance, community of property, so far as it went, was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment, which would have been to the general benefit and comfort. For the young men were 
who were most able and fit for service objected to being forced to spend their time and strength in working for other men's wives and children without any recompense. The strong man or the resourceful man had no more share of food, clothes, etc. than the weak man, who was not able to do a quarter the other could. This was thought injustice. The aged and graver men who were rankled and equalized in labor, food, clothes, etc. with the humbler and younger ones thought it some indignity and disrespect to them. As for the men's wives who were obliged to do service for other men, such as cooking, washing their clothes, etc., they considered it a kind of slavery, and many husbands would not brook it. This feature of it would have been worse still if they had been men of an inferior class. If, it was thought, all were to share alike and all were to do alike, then all were on an equality throughout and one was as good as another. And so if it did not actually abolish those very relations which God himself has set among men, it did at least greatly diminish the mutual respect that is so important should be preserved amongst them. Let none argue that this is due to human failing rather than to this communistic plan of life in itself. I answer, seeing that all men have this failing in them, that God in his wisdom saw that another plan of life was fitter for them. It's that time of the year again when we're all looking for something special to give friends and loved ones for the holidays. Unfortunately, the government and its bank have worked especially hard this year at doing what they do best, make things more expensive for the rest of us. Well, I have great news. You can get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas. That's my gift to you in appreciation for listening. But that's not all. I've also made the book available as a paperback at an incredibly low price, so you can get a few copies to give as gifts. It makes a great stocking stuffer. And don't worry, this is not some preachy libertarian treatise. It's full of fun and even includes a special Christmas beverage recipe. Get more information and your free ebook at antistatechristmas.com. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and demand and follow the golden. So Bradford doesn't just document that they starved under communism and began to thrive only after they had private property. But he takes an aside from his narrative to try and convey to future generations the wisdom that they had acquired by this experiment. It was as if he were saying, look, we had a very miserable time. We lost a lot of people, but at least we finally proved that communism doesn't work. After all these thousands of years going back to Plato and his republic, arguing that the guardians should hold all their property in common. We finally proved that wrong, and hopefully people in the future will not have to suffer under the system that we attempted here. And you notice also that he says this was among godly men. So unlike the Jamestown colonies where a lot of people were being forced against their will, this was tried voluntarily by the Plymouth colonists who labored under the same delusion that somehow or other a communist system is more Christian, more 
charitable, or somehow more noble. And this idea seems to persist to this day because communists always get a pass. When somebody brings up the idea of a brutal dictator, who do they always compare that person to? And it's Adolf Hitler, who, of course, was a brutal dictator who killed six million of his own people. But nobody ever brings up Joseph Stalin, who killed 30 million of his own people, or Mao Zedong, who killed 60 million of his own people. Somehow or other, these these dictators are held in a different light, and no one ever uses them as an example because of this persistent idea that somehow socialism or communism is a noble idea that just maybe never has been tried the right way. Well, it had been tried in America, not only in the Jamestown and Plymouth colonies, but soon after the United States won its independence, a plethora of communistic colonies sprung up in the early 19th century. As Lawrence Reed of the Foundation for Economic Education writes in an article that I'll link to on the show notes page, at least 119 utopian, communal, or socialist settlements were founded in the early 1800s in America. As most of the country reveled in newly won freedoms and a market economy that allowed the enterprising to create wealth, a few malcontents sought a different life. They spurned private property in favor of sharing material things in common. They preferred a planned community over the supposed chaos of the market's spontaneous order. They thought that if they just worked out on paper what their preferred society would look like, everything and everybody would just fall into place. In Dark Side of Paradise, A Brief History of America's Utopian Experiments in Communal Living, I summarize their dreams. In a selfless spirit of community and a brotherly cooperation instead of competition, there would be virtually no divisions of class or income. Everybody would then live happily ever after, and in parentheses, which, as readers know, is a popular final line of many a fairy tale. You know, in those few instances where the facts of the Jamestown Colony and Plymouth are brought up, the defenders of socialism will say, oh, well, that wasn't real socialism because either it was capitalism, really, because this was launched by private investor companies in England, or as I've said, in the case of Jamestown, the people who actually had to live under these conditions were not completely free. Now, this argument doesn't hold water for a number of reasons, the most obvious being that whatever conditions the Plymouth or Jamestown colonists were under didn't change before and after they had the socialist system. So the only thing that was different between when they starved and when they didn't was the fact that they had a socialist economic system. Now, the fact that the Plymouth colonists had agreed with their investors to share things in common didn't change the fact that once they got to North America and formed the Mayflower Compact, they really had no other choice but to obey the laws of the community, which at first mandated a socialist system. And finally, we shouldn't forget that if the socialists of today got their way, of course, we wouldn't have any other choice either. This would not be something that you could either choose to live under or not. They want to impose a socialist system just like the governments of those colonies did. 
But that's not the case in all these utopian communities in America between 1800 and 1859. These were completely voluntary. The people entered of their own free will, pooled their resources, and tried democratic socialism just as it's pitched to American young people today. And it was a disaster in every case. In fact, Nathaniel Hawthorne was a resident in one of them and ended up suing the proprietors of the community. And even Louisa May Alcott was taken to one of these communities as a child. It was called Fruitlands by her father, Bronson Alcott, who was one of the founders, along with a man named Charles Lane. And these people were true believers in socialism. Getting back to Lawrence Reed's article, he writes, The mere desire to acquire property for oneself, even by serving others as customers, was regarded as repugnant. Lane and Alcott once visited a nearby settlement of Shakers, and while admiring the Shakers' practice of property held in common, they condemned them for engaging in commerce by selling their homemade furniture. Louisa May Alcott later wrote a scorching critique about her family's time at Fruitlands in an essay entitled Transcendental Wild Oats. It includes this paragraph. Money was abjured as the root of all evil. The produce of the land was to provide most of their wants or be exchanged for the few things they could not grow. This idea had its inconveniences, but self-denial was the fashion, and it was surprising how many things one can do without. I'd like to share just the last two paragraphs of Reed's essay here to give you the end of this story. He writes, None of those 119 or more utopian communes survived. The lucky ones still around are museums today. None lasted so much as a decade. Fruitlands, and this is the one that Louisa May Alcott lived at, went belly up quicker than most of them. It was gone in a mere seven months. Perhaps that lousy track record is the reason socialists don't practice voluntary socialism today, preferring to dragoon people into their plans by coercion. That's a rather sad commentary, isn't it? Ideas so bad that because they flop when tried freely, they must be imposed at the point of a gun? What could go wrong? Indeed, what could go wrong? We may have the misfortune to find out if we don't start thinking more clearly about these things and at least knowing a little history that, yes, democratic socialism was tried hundreds of times right here in America and failed every time. And that really begs a question that I'd like to ask you, dear listener. Did you know any of this? I certainly didn't when I got out of school and I was considered well-educated, had a master's degree and everything. And I had no idea that the Jamestown colonist or the Plymouth colonist both tried socialism and starved because of it and both turned it all around when they got rid of socialism and installed private property. Why wasn't I taught any of this? Why weren't you taught any of this? You know, we have a lot of parents showing up at school board meetings and objecting to not only mask mandates on their kids, an insane idea for a population that has about as much chance of dying from COVID-19 as they have from being struck by lightning, but they're also objecting to this new form of Marxism called critical race theory, which is simply the application of critical theory developed by communists in the 1930s to come up with another way of pitching their ideas when their economic predictions had all failed. 
but they really should have been concerned long before critical race theory became an issue. Just ask yourself, if your children are going to spend weeks in school cutting out cray paper pilgrim hats and and making those Thanksgiving turkeys with their their fingers and and decorating their classrooms and in all sorts of ways commemorating and learning about the plight of the pilgrims in Plymouth Colony, shouldn't the central lesson, the lesson that William Bradford himself hoped that future generations would take from their hardship be taught to the children? The Plymouth and Jamestown colonies are a lesson that communism is lethal and private property is the key to survival and prosperity in any community. And that was confirmed by those 119 or more voluntary socialist communes that were tried in America in the first half of the 19th century. If you have a child in school, I challenge you to look into the textbook they're reading on history. Does it mention any of this? Are their teachers teaching them the central lesson of the pilgrim's plight? I have a feeling they're not. And maybe while you're at that school board meeting, you ought to ask them why that is as well. In any case, I want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving, and I'll see you next week with more episodes of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget to get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas, at antistatechristmas.com. Of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally listen. And please do go to the Tom Mullen Talks Freedom website at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and leave a review. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.